Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from the audience at Smith Weekly, including Stuart L., Chris O., o Ken D., Cyril O., Miko L., and Andy S. Duncan Crabe is our guest today. Duncan is Managing Director and CEO of Boss Resources, an Australian-focused uranium project developer advancing the Honeymoon ISR project in South Australia. The company is listed on the Australian Securities Exchange under the symbol B-O-E. Duncan, welcome and uh, thank you for taking the time, sir. Andrew, hi. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be invited on your program today and thank you very much for affording me the opportunity to walk you through the exciting honeymoon project and our ability to deliver Australia's next uranium producer. Well, Duncan, it's great to have you on and I know it's been a, a long time in the process and I'm glad that you finally agreed to come on the show. Well, Duncan, let's start off here just for the audience. Can you just tell us a little bit about your experience in the uranium business and then also take us back to your background before coming over to Boss Resources? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I grew up in Western Australia where mining accounts for about 45% of the state's gross revenue. Mining is in our DNA. And uh, by the time I'd finished university, I'd paid for my education from driving dump trucks and earth moving equipment. A few years later, I professionally qualified as a chartered accountant with a yearning to get back into industry. Then came stints on various base metal projects as a CFO. And in 2008, I was asked to join Kalahari Minerals with their 43% holding in extract resources and its Husab mine in Namibia. And from that period on, I've been purely focused on uranium. So Husab itself is one of the largest uranium deposit discoveries of the past decade, uh, which, we, which we led the sale to China General Nuclear for 2.1 billion US in April 2012. And immediately after the sale, the chairman of CGN offered me the position of finance director of the Husab mine. And without hesitation, bags were packed and we relocated to Namibia with my wife, Catherine, and our six-month-old son and two-year-old daughter. Four years quickly went by. In October 2016, I was working on the Husab mine site in Namibia and I received a call from the chairman of Boss Resources uh, and he said, Dunk, you guys have nearly finished commissioning HUSAB, what are you going to do next? And I sort of replied, geez, you know, we've been 100% focused on getting HUSAB into production. So he said, look at the bigger picture. You know, you've gained the experience, you've earned your stripes, why not take on a new development restart project yourself? What do you mean? He said, well, have a look at Boss Resources. It's recently acquired Honeymoon from Uranium One. I think you're the right guy to help put this asset back into production. Come home, join the team. So I ended that conversation and said that I would think about it as my wife and children were perfectly you know, happy and settled in Namibia and I'd dedicated eight years of my life just to get that project into production. So I took a few weeks researching Honeymoon and the challenges Uranium had encountered, which were well publicised. And, you know, to be frank with you, Andrew, I wasn't 100% certain, uh, but I've always believed in technical advancements. And the more I thought about it, my gut told me there's an opportunity here. And that in itself was 
was pretty exciting. So because Honeymoon's got a history of production and export, we have an actual basis of production optimization. You know, the defined faults were clear, they could be systematically handled, and only restart projects have this benefit. You know, the, the ability to look back and assess um, based on prior results. So after 16 years of gaining international mining experience, my family relocated home down under Australia to celebrate Christmas in 2016. Uh, two weeks later in January 17, I found myself in South Australia on the Honeymoon Mine site as CEO. Um, and I clearly remember the day I uh, first drove up the dusty road to the Honeymoon Uranium Mine in very flat outback Australia. Well, excellent, Duncan, and you know, good on you for the time over in Namibia and being able to go over there and take your family there. I think that's an, a testament to how Namibia is number one, in my view, in Africa, and it's way above everybody else, and it surpassed South Africa in the recent years. And so um, as I continue to investigate Namibia, it just gets better and better, not only for uranium mining, but also for gold mining and oil and gas. So uh, fantastic and, and really good in that front. And then, you know, if you can drive a haul truck or operate a shovel and also be an accountant, um, you know, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, and I must say, I mean, Namibia truly is a, a wonderful country with, uh, with wonderful people. Why don't we go ahead and just step in here for a moment and, and let's talk a little bit about, uh, just give us a brief overview of Boss Resources and then we'll go ahead and get into the details. Boss Resources is basically the 100% owner of the Honeymoon Uranium Mine. It's a pure play uranium company with a single brownfield uranium restart asset that was placed in care and maintenance in 2014 due to low uranium prices. And since that time, we've technically advanced the project to lower, basically lower the operating cost and increase the production profile. Honeymoon's unique. It contains a fully permitted uranium mine. It can produce up to 3.3 million pounds per annum, uh, which is fully permitted with Australian federal government approval. It's got $170 million worth of established infrastructure, including a plant in good condition under care and maintenance. It's produced and exported uranium from, from Port Adelaide. And in South Australia, it holds heritage and native titled mining agreements. So it's basically good to go. It can be fast tracked to production within a 12 month time span. Um, to, you know, to seize upon sort of market fundamentals as the price, uranium price rises. And that will be followed by an increased production through the addition of an iron exchange plant, which would take about 24 months, 20 to 24 months to construct and commission. So we're sort of, you know, we're recognised as having global first mover advantage and certainly as Australia's next uranium producer. Um, where it's located in South Australia, it's a premier uranium mining state within Australia. Uh, three of Australia's four fully permitted mines are based in South Australia. There's no risk of political disruption. We've got state and federal government support, established shipping routes through Port Adelaide of 30 years, so there's no risk of delay. It's a first world mining jurisdiction attracting, you know, first world investment and talent. The mine, yeah, as mentioned, placed in care and maintenance in 2014. Boss purchased it from Uranium One in December 2015. And just talk a little bit about the exploration uh, potential and expansion, uh, Duncan, if you will. Is resource expansion at this point uh, something in focus or is exploration work really being reserved until production normalizes and cash flow is coming in? 
From resource perspective, uh, we've got a very respectable uranium deposit. Um, our land package comprises of mineralised sort of paleo valleys or channels throughout over 2,600 square kilometres of tenements. Uh, it's hosted in high-grade sandstone amenable to the ISR mining, uh, with mineralisation occurring at a shallow depth of about 90 to 120 metres. Um, our jork resource, 71.6 million pounds. Mining licence uh, contains 34 million pounds of that jork resource. Uh, the grade, roughly 620 ppm. It's perfect for ISR mining, you know, the cheapest source of resource extraction. But the real, the real sort of blue sky and what we're terribly excited about is this significant exploration target of up to 190 million pounds. Um, and that's, that's been determined by several independent geologists. But basically, there's been over 20, 20 years of sort of exploration conducted on those tenements uh, with over 5,000 historic drill holes. And COVID-19, it's, it's basically limited our geological team's ability to undertake fieldwork activities. And as such, we've been gifted a unique opportunity to complete comprehensive desktop reviews on on all that extensive historical information um, and to define new uranium exploration targets and advance our our sort of our, our resource growth. So absolutely the plan, while we've come out with a base case study recently, um, that was really predicated on the mining licence, but no doubt we, we plan to expand our resource, but do so when the price supports it. Um, there's no, in my mind, there's no point drilling now and sort of diluting shareholders for the sake of building a resource if the uranium price isn't isn't supportive of that. Yeah, very well, and agreed with that thought process. Well, let's go back to the efforts of Uranium One to build out and operate Honeymoon. What would you say are were the past ISR problems with the project, and what has the company done since acquiring the project to fix those problems when it comes time for startup and steady state operations? It's important to address this, and uh, I mean, if we take a step back, so, you know, there I was, early 2017, initial road trip to the Honeymoon Mine, thinking to myself, here we are in the best uranium state of South Australia, $170 million worth of plant that can quickly be brought back to production to respond to market conditions, and a fantastic, you know, 71.6 jork resource, 100 mil 190 million pounds of exploration potential, but, you know, I was forced to remind myself, take a deep breath, mate. Don't get too carried away. Remember those issues that Uranium One had encountered and I'd researched in Namibia. And they're best summed up by three categories. There's the, they had problems with well-field performance, the well-field design, construction, a greater need to understand the sort of geological interpretation. Uh, there were chemistry issues. They needed to lower the pH levels, increase acidity, uh, increase the iron tenors and the leach chemistry, deal with calcium solubility. And then they had solvent extraction processing issues, which is what the plant was built on. And they, the challenges I saw that they needed to increase their processing capacity in, and hence we've introduced iron exchange. They needed to target the right tenor and bring that gypsum under control. So to have the, I mean, really, when you, when you step back, it's really to have the ability to look back at a project and categorise these areas is a huge benefit that only restart projects such as Honeymoon can capitalise on. When we take a deeper look at those issues, um, as, as, you, as you quite rightly mentioned, um, how do we enhance that process flow sheet and effectively bring a company to market? 
And the crux of that technical issue was the low uranium tanner in the PLS or the pregnant leach solution, which averaged for uranium-1 only 53.5 milligrams per litre, far below the plant design of 78 milligram per litre. Those production, low production levels, of course, have a detrimental flow and effect to increasing operational costs. So we, we did a lot of testing there with ANSTO. We did MET testing in their laboratory and um, we, we thought that we had the right sort of chemistry. We looked at our neighbourly operating ISR mine Heathgate, some 300 kilometres to our west, and spoke to their technical guys. And we looked at the solution um, that could be used to extract the uranium. And uh, that culminated in a field leach trial in the second half of 2017. Huge breakthrough for the project. Basically, technically, technically validated the areas of concern, massive win for the company. So we had two well fields, we leached for about five months, we uh, demonstrated the modified leach chemistry, that low pH, high iron, uh, and improved the leaching kinetics, the gypsum scaling, we controlled through the liquor chemistry, and there we were achieving average uranium tanners of between 90 to 100 milligram per litre. So that's up from the 53 and a half milligram per litre uh, uranium one had. Um, and in, in addition to that, we were able to engage some of the best technical experts worldwide. I mean, um, Bryn Jones, uh, who subsequently joined the board and his consultancy outfit, uh, the Inception Group. We had Bob Ring and, and the Australian government endorsed and professional team at ANSTO. And Dr. Dennis Stover, who's an independent ISR expert, many of your listeners would know in North America, um, to independently verify our planning, the implementation, analysis of results. And uh, I mean, Dennis himself, he was such a welcomed, mature addition to the team. He signed off every email with, uh, you know, there are no problems, only opportunities. And talk about the wise teaching the young, he just instilled confidence in us to, to, to really go forward with these trials and, and conduct, um, conduct the various sort of uh, new methods and uh, the importance of being patient. And a few years later, when I had the pleasure of asking Bryn to join the board as a technical director, you know, Dr. Dennis Stover emailed to say congratulations on bringing Bryn to the team. I've known him for 15 years. You chose wisely. So wonderful endorsement. It's really just bringing that international top talent, which is scarce these days, to our project. Andrew, the second key validation was really the testing of uh, new resins on the iron exchange process. Um, the resin that we're using weren't, wasn't identified at the time Uranium One had built the plant, and as such, they went forward constructing a, constructing a solvent extraction process um, because it's tolerant to chloride, and chloride naturally occurs in our in our honeymoon's le uh, leach liquors. It's kind of like seawater; it's that that much salinity. But Ansto identified a new weak-based amine resin tolerant to chloride, and that could replace the strong-based amine type resins, and that that sort of led to smaller processing equipment, decrease in capex, and allows us to pursue iron exchange, which accounts for about 50% of the world's supply of uranium. It's proven technology. So that, and in addition, it's sort of, we could then focus on the elimination of organic contamination from the final product. So in that sense, we'll be using carbon columns to uh, to remove the dissolved organic in the feed to the precip or circuit, the uh, precipitation circuit. And in addition, we're implementing a high temperature kiln to calcine the urinal uh, peroxide precipitate to uh, further ensure there's no organic in the final product. So, you know, all of these um, technical improvements 
uh, and achievements were culminated over the past three years, and that that led to where we find ourselves today with a with a feasibility study that we released in uh, in January 2020, um, and now we're sort of adopting that frame of operational readiness, getting getting prepared to get back into production. Appreciate the overview on that, and Duncan, what do you see after all of this study and your guys is refining the results that have come in the tests? What would you say at this point, it doesn't sound like there's much, but what would you say at this point is the biggest risk to getting cake in a can and getting that sold? What do you what do you see there? Biggest risk is the market. The biggest risk to us is it's not so much technical. We've addressed those issues. We've brought in all the independent experts we can uh, internationally, and we've really you know pulled this apart. And the one aspect, uh, as much as you know, it's tough and challenging, but in a low uranium environment for a, a project like us, it affords you the opportunity to really dissect uh, an operating, you know, how best to operate. And the beauty of having, as mentioned, uh, a plant that's got a proven production capacity um, is to really pick apart those faults and capitalise on them. So to me, the biggest risk right now is um, is, 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 is the price. When can we get back into production? Not so much a technical area. Um, but having said that, on technical, we're still looking at ways to optimise. And um, on the 20th of August, I put out an, an announcement just showing that we've further reduced our capex uh, by 10%. Um, and you know we've reduced our electricity needs from enhancing our illusion circuit. And there are more advancements we'll, we'll keep making um, you know, as, we, as we prepare to get back into, um, or until that day that we're back into production. The, the bear market teaches you to do more with less, and uh, I think that you oh, uh, you pointed that out very well. It does. Well, let's talk uh, broad market uranium. Your thoughts on the broad market today, and how do you see Honeymoon positioned to take advantage in this market? It's a um, good question. I mean, a detailed answer there. I mean, you know, it's such a such an interesting market and so many facets to consider. Uh, we've got cutbacks to production for economic reasons and COVID closures had, have reduced inventories. Uh, this brings the timing for the need of new mines forward as the timing in the forecast was really dependent on mobile inventories being available to fill the, the shortfall between demand and primary supply. Um, we've got Cameco and our friends there uh, recently announced the restart of Cigar Lake, which shut down in March um, of this year. And if that mine restarts next month, that's six months shutdown in total. Um, annual production is expected to be down 8 million pounds. Um, looking further afield at uh, Kazataprom, uh, you know, they've announced that they intend to continue flexing down production by 20% through 2022. And that compares to the planned levels under the subsoil use contracts. Um, that Kazataprom is also maintaining its 20% reduction against subsoil use contracts next year and no additional production is planned to reduce volumes lost in 2020, which was due to measures taken to combat COVID-19. So that the, the full implementation of their decision could remove up to about 14.3 14, 14 million pounds from anticipated global primary supply. So that there's some big signals or shocks to the to production out there. Um, and then, of course, we've got this uh, the Russian suspension agreement. And as I understand it, the Department of Commerce is playing hardball. And I'm only saying that from afar, but um, it'll put something out, I believe, for comment early September with a view of having a position in October. Um, and some of those proposals include 
75% quota of SWU rather than EUP and some impossible logistical requirements on the return of its tails globally. But again, most of that's still under negotiation. I'm, I'm not privy to it. But it, it would be reasonable to say that that uncertainty that comes with it is impacting US utilities until there's clarity on the outcome of the RSA. And, and that one impact for the market may be that US utilities may have to purchase more natural uranium and conversion at fairly short notice if they're forced to buy feed for some portion of their enrichment uh, supply contracts. So the key takeaway here, I think, Andrew, is that while the uncertainty exists, it's easier for utilities to take short and mid-term decisions rather than long-term ones. And, and that leads to long-term procurement decisions being put on hold. And as such, we're seeing hopefully pressure on the spot price. When you sort of weigh all those factors into account, I mean, let's put it into context. Where does, where does Honeymoon fit into that macro picture? So two months ago, it was sort of in June, uh, I was having my weekly catch up with uh, my chairman, Peter O'Connor, and it was on the eve of taking my annual break, coinciding with school holidays with my family. And I sort of felt pretty awkward taking time off as there were lots going on with the company. But, uh, but we haven't, I haven't really taken a break for a while uh, with shoulder to the wheel. And Peter kindly just said to me, look, don't worry, I've got it covered. We've got Bryn, Sashi and the team. Go enjoy yourself and by all means, turn your, turn your phone off. Um, so my family and I, we drove some 2,000 kilometres to a beautiful place in our northwest called Broome. Uh, absolutely stunning doorstep to the Kimberleys, real outback Australia, and relaxing there with the family. But that coincidentally happened to be the timing of our premier uranium conference hosted by OzIMM, of which you know that I'm on the uh, organising committee. And thanks to Andrew for your, your assistance with that, that program. But anyway, I couldn't resist waking up and listening in. And um, while the family was still asleep, I turned on my phone and connected and just to listen to a fantastic lineup of speakers. And the first was Trevor Klingbill, president of Tradetech, who I very much hold in high respect. And she just laid it out, you know, such that the drivers of the increase in the spot price existed long before COVID-19, you know, and that the elastic band is tightening. And you go back to the WNA conference in September last year, where industry recognised at that point that uh, that demand that demand was outstripping primary production by 2023, demand would be outstripping primary production plus inventory levels. So from a supply side, Trevor went on. You know, Trade Tech in at, at OzIMM was estimated 45 million pounds was taken out of the market since 2016. From a demand side, reactor requirements are now higher than pre-Fukushima and expected to grow. The market's sort of US-centric, but China is increasing. And then the, her focus turned to views on Australia and that non-OECD countries, such as Asia and India, are likely to drive long-term requirements. Utilities worldwide are expressing a desire to diversify their supply risk and lower that risk. Um, they recognise that Australia is on the doorstep to Asia and great trading relations with America. So it's geographically really well positioned and endowed to uh, capitalise on this growth. Um, Australia accounts for 30% of the world's known uranium resources and we've got a really stable political environment. We've got access to skilled personnel with one of the most well-established mining jurisdictions. Presentation then focused on in terms of new uranium producers. New deposits take time to develop, new mines take time to build, and the most competitive projects in the future are likely to be small, easier to define, 
and low cost. So I'm tickling with excitement. I'm listening to the presentation and my phone pings with a text message from Guy Keller, who runs uh, Tribeca's resource fund, stating, and I quote, Trevor is basically plugging boss resources. You know, and the following speakers further confirmed Honeymoon Standalone Quality as a restart project. You had Vorshoff highlighting few management teams have proven performance. Mike Alkin detailing how risk has transferred from the supply to the utility. And Adam Rotman coining the phrase, which I love, not all pounds are created equal. So first movers have pricing power due to the lack of competition with other developing mines and uh, pricing power leads to valuation premiums, particularly at the beginning of a cycle, which is where we find ourselves. Uh, Marcelo Lopez commented on the real drivers of the industry. Guy Keller sums it up in his presentation uh, that, uh, that there's a tightening of the market and as supply decreases, decreases and the deficit as predicted last year by WNA is brought forward, investors should be focusing on projects, the stage of project development, the capex required, the jurisdiction, the permitting, community relations, time to production, incentivised prices, management teams. So I'm listening to all these presentations, Andrew, and I'm pumped. You know, Boss Resources, the Honeymoon Mine, we've addressed all their valid points. We're in a box seat. So the rest of the family holidays sort of race by, mate, and uh, we had a fantastic time and memorable and special time. And, you know, it's so important to have that time with family. But I just couldn't wait to get back to work. And COVID's effectively shown us all, I think, that, um, you know, reliance on a small number of jurisdiction and suppliers for that critical raw product is such a dangerous assumption. You know, there's geopolitical risk is prevalent and Australia's in a really good position to capitalise on this. Um, I think, uh, you know, another important aspect to consider maybe, and it's one that, you know, Sashi and I spend a bit of time contemplating, is that since the Cameco announcement, there's also been some pressure on price. But if you look more closely, you see that the price di di differentials between CMO and the other facilities have narrowed. So in late June, the differential was about four US per pound. Yesterday, or it was sort of, it had fallen to $1.50 per pound. So our belief is that a sustainable upward price movement is only possible once those differentials are closer to the historical levels. And uh, this development, I think, is a really welcome one for the whole sector. Appreciate the info there. And certainly a number of companies are gonna have their opportunity to perform and the market's going to give them that opportunity. We're certainly in an interesting position where the market um, is still, I guess the jury's still out as far as uh, when things start to move. But I look at it, of course, as opportunity for people who haven't quite positioned themselves fully to continue to deploy that capital. So I think we're in a really fantastic position. Absolutely, well, I agree. Let's talk capital structure. Can you just tell us uh, what you have outstanding for shares at this point, um, the cash debt position and key shareholders, including uh, the management team? Yeah, sure. I mean, capital structure, uh, I guess over the past few years, uh, the company's transformed. And with that transformation, we've seen it on our share register. And we've been attracting some quality investors. 
into when I look at that compilation, it's it's basically now we're 41% to 45%, excuse me, institutional. Of that institutional, we've got a great great cross section internationally. I think we've got about 12% speaking from from the US and 12% uh, from Europe, and there's some in Asia as well, totaling about 6%, remainder of which being Australia. In terms of shares on issue, we've got 1.5 billion, and and that's that's a legacy issue. Our share price is around eight cents and market cap 125 million. So so overall, it's, it's we're in a good place, really. Uh, I'm really very much focused on building a tighter register. It's a key focus of mine. When we when I was involved with Kalahari and Extract, we basically ended up with about nine institutions holding 80% of the register. And that, that would be a key goal of mine, just to really solidify it. But, you know, of course, we've got free float and uh, I have a great, great, great open relationship with all of our investors. Management team ownership, it's changed slightly over that journey from the original vendors to where we are now, but it's about 4% ownership at the moment. And speak to just the management team. Why don't you introduce us to some of the key folks, obviously, besides yourself. Can you go ahead and just kind of cover the management team for us and highlight the key people? Yeah, sure. So uh, management team and board. I'm, I'm, look, I'm a huge believer. You've got to get it right at the at the head at the top level um, because that just filters down through the whole organisation. And I, I was just absolutely thrilled when our chairman, Peter O'Connor, joined the board in January this year. I've had the pleasure of knowing Pete. Peter, since uh, um, for the past decade, he's been a long-term shareholder and a big supporter, but he's got extensive global experience in, in funds management. Uh, he's worked in private public companies and in all sorts of merging and developed economies. But, you know, his, his big role of, of the recent decade has been a, a non-executive director of Northern Star, um, senior non-exec there. And, you know, he's been involved with its growth transformation from a 300 million market cap to where it stands today in excess of 10 billion. Uh, quite a guy. Uh, Brent Jones, who I've referred to earlier, um, he, he's the technical director. He's Adelaide based. He's a fantastic bloke, industry, industrial chemist with more than 20 years of experience in, in the uranium industry. He's worked in all aspects of the mining cycle, but particularly focused in on uranium and ISR. Um, he spent 10 years with uh, our nearest producer, Heathgate, um, owned by General Atomics. Um, he's also, when he joined us, he had just left the position of being COO of, uh, of the Laramide Resources. Um, so he's, he's a great addition to the team. Dudley Kingsnorth has joined recently the board as a non-exec. He's got extensive experience in, in various mining companies, Shell, Rio, uh, BHP, um, really a career focused on process development, project feasibility um, from to, to ensure a successful mine startup. So as we're evolving, we're focusing on that project execution, operational experience. And then you look at the international markets. and. One, of, one A very close colleague and a friend of mine who I've had the pleasure of working with over the past 10 years is Sashi Davies. She's, she's enjoyed a wonderful career of, of distinguished service to the uh, international uranium sector, extensive experience, marketing experience, in-depth uranium knowledge. Um, she's got long-lasting relationships with international utilities and off-takers. And, um, you know, uh, sort of a few months ago, she was uh, invited and elected to the Board of Governors for the World Nuclear Fuel Markets, um, which was a tremendous accolade and achievement. So I guess all in all, um, 
it's, I think it's fair to say that you know we're, our executive team really um, are well known. Uh, Sashi, myself, Bryn in particular are well connected in the market. Um, we've got experience bringing uranium mines to operation and contracting with utilities. We've done it before. Uh, look forward to doing it again. We've, we've got the experience. We're motivated. Um, we can identify, retain talent, experience in uranium and you know, when the market picks up, those human resources will be a very rare commodity and highly sought after, but we've made huge strides to, to secure our team now and be ready for that. Grant Davey was there. Can you cover that role that he had and his initial work at Boss? Can you just cover that and, and how that went? Grant Davey basically identified Honeymoon as an acquisition target and together with uh, a colleague, uh, Evan Cranston, who also served on our board, they negotiated with Uranium One and subsequently vended it into the company, Boss Resources, in late 2015. Uh, Grant himself uh, is particularly adept at identifying opportunities and early stage acquisition advancement and then hand, handing it off to a, a team of developers or operators. So I succeeded him in uh, January 17 as CEO of Boss Resources. As at that point, he had increasing workload at the time as he was then focused on largely gold and zinc interests. Let's chat uh, feasibility study. You, in January, I want to say, of this year, you guys completed that feasibility study and, of course, have since, as, uh, as of recently, just uh, optimized that a little bit. Can you talk about that and just the overview and for the initial phase of that work at Honeymoon? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I mean, this this has been the key driver for me over the past since joining the company to really get to that point that we could produce the feasibility study and, and sort of benchmark the company. But in essence, uh, Honeymoon offers like an unparalleled investment opportunity. It's got an impressive IRR, low capital intensity, short time to restart production and, you know, provides an excellent leverage to this and anticipated upswing in uranium fundamentals. We based it on a base case uranium price of 50 US per pound over life of mine um, and it shows that, that we can uh, respond rapidly to a market rally given our low capex barrier. Average all-in cost was 32.3 US per pound, um, but since then, in on the announcement on the 20th of August, we we've been able to reduce that further by $1.22, and we're looking to further reduce it. Um, and that all-in cost I'm referring to as C3 all-inclusive cost. Um, so it's pretty 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 remarkable. Uh, it also offers you know investors a real near-term uranium supply prospect, and at the same time allows us to progress off-take discussions with contract, uh, contractors and utilities worldwide. Um, it's designed, the feasibility base case is designed to fast track production and that works on recommissioning the existing solvent extraction process in a 12 month period and then looking to expand production to 2 million pounds per annum. Um, our team has, as mentioned, uh, you know, during our core, it's, it's technically de-risked the project. It's ensured that there's no timeline drag from that onerous task of securing permits and approvals that are needed. Um, it's got $170 million worth of historical expenditure on infrastructure and plant um, that's previously produced and exported. And um, it's got a base case MPV capex of at least two and a half times uh, in terms of ratio and minimal construction risk. So so it's really, um, it's really good to go technically. And 
as we've just touched on the resource, um, it's important to note we're only utilising half our available Jork resource, 36 million pounds. And I did that because that's on the mining permit. That's fully permitted, ready to go. Our defined exploration target can potentially then extend the mine life beyond the initial 12 years in the study, um, increase the production profile, and under the under our federal government act, um, it allows export of more than three million pounds per annum. So, I guess best of all, coming out with that study, it, it basically we've had industry endorsement of Honeyman as providing real opportunities now for us to progress off-take contracts with utilities worldwide and other commercial discussions are continuing. And with this study, is it sufficient at this point to move forward with financing and restart or is the company planning to move you know we, we see often folks move to this definitive study but that's not always the case what's the plan going forward uh to our minds that is the definitive study under under asic rules or asx rules um the only that word definitive is really having proven and probable reserves which is difficult on a uranium mine actually until you actually an isr project excuse me until you actually start production uh, which isn't dissimilar to any other international so that that is our definitive study um, in terms of when we look at financing we have started that process um, you know the whole process of securing debt is ultimately dependent on offtake and we've started that engagement with prospective banks identifying those who we could work well with to obtain competitive terms and a real advantage in starting this process now prior to landing an offtake agreement is that it can take um, up to six months so from my experience um, and particularly with HUSAB where I was part of that lead team securing over uh, nearly 1.8 billion of, of debt, um, you know, the best way is to run any financial process or financing process is to run it as tight and coherent as possible. You know, it really stuffs things up. If you drag it out or miss deadlines, people just lose confidence. So we've started the necessary work streams earlier to be sure to be ready. And, and then, of course, the most prudent means of securing the best terms is running a competitive process with at least two to three parties. So, so the financing is now underway and we're running that in parallel with the various activities on the ground. Appreciate you clarifying that. I know investors can get confused sometimes, certainly with the different terminology we hear. In some parts of the world, bankable feasibility studies, we hear definitive feasibility studies, we hear feasibility yeah. studies, we hear pre-feasibility studies. And when you run it all together from North America to Australia, it just really gets into a a lot of different terminology. I appreciate that. I mean, just on my experience, we, when we did the feasibility study, I mean, we really treat, I treat as a bankable and the modelling that we did was far more in depth than a standard study would entail. We, it's, it's investment grade status. It's, it's, a, it's a model that we can put in front of any bank worldwide to secure that type of finance. So, so it's, I guess it's, you know, we, we've tried to do as much as we can with a tight belt and, and run a smart process and I think you know we're doing we're doing a good job in that area. It's interesting because I, I have to admit the capital cost to get underway is probably the best in the entire sector. So the amount of banks and the amount of discussions that can take place because of where the financing is, it's not like you're trying to go out and raise you know half a billion dollars. I mean it's uh, very amenable to very many banks, and so it's a good setup. Let's go ahead and talk about timing, Duncan, for a moment. Are you guys planning to move forward right away or are you waiting for other contracts to be filled? 
um, as far as potential offtake, or are you waiting for a specific yeah. uranium price point? What's your thoughts on that? There's quite a few answers to that question. I mean, it's really dependent now on the, the uranium price and landing and offtake. Um, we need that offtake to secure the debt, basically. Um, one could go ahead and raise, you know, sort of equity right now, but I think it's best to just keep keep working on our technical advancements and drill-ready targets, getting ready for that increase in uranium price. Once we do secure the, the financing, Stage one, which is really the, we can do a quick restart of the existing solvent extraction plant within a 12 month period. And then we look at stage two, which is the addition of the iron exchange plant within 24 months. Um, so together, stage one and two could be developed in parallel. Uh, we'd just have shy of a million pounds coming on stream and just after the first year and up, then ramping up to two million pounds. And, and then when it's, we bring in the additional resource, the plans then to ramp that up even further in excess of three million pounds. So, so in a project timing wise, that's, that's, that's how we look at it. And I, again, I go back to experience. I mean, while, while you may find some colleagues out there in the industry sort of say it's a flick of a switch when you start a mine, it's not at all. I mean, you go through a ramp up process and, and I'm cognizant of that. And we, We've, we've developed our planning and our financial model accordingly. Yeah, absolutely agreed. Now, the feasibility study under stage two has an all-in cost of about 33 a pound US. At what uranium price, Duncan, if you can share that with us, is are you really looking forward to motivate really going after a restart? It's a, it's a good question. It's one I'm, I'm asked a lot and, you know, the pressure is, there's sort of twofold. The pressure is to get out there and sign an offtake, but let, let me put it in this perspective. When I, when I assess a mining project, and that, that's any commodity for that matter, I consider those with an MPV, your net present value, needs to be at least two to two and a half times the capital outlay, the capex outlay, and you derive and also derive an IRR of 40%. So when you achieve those targets, you derive shareholder value. So if you if you apply that to honeymoon, we can achieve this at an average of say 50 US per pound, um, which is the base case price we use in our feasibility study. But Andrew, don't don't get me wrong. You know I'm not going to destroy our resources at low prices simply to land an offtake. If we see movement in the in the price, we may hold on or we may enter into it. But I think our, our base case price at 50 is. Um, derives that benefit. So anything north of there, I'd be happy. Yeah, there's no reason I'm pulling the trigger early uh, if you know the fundamentals of the market and you know what's going to happen. And we all see that as 50 plus. I think it makes sense to make sure that that's kept in mind and you know what's going on behind the scenes. The 33 all-in cost, Duncan, you know, one of the things that, that the industry and, and other industries in the natural resource sector have struggled with was was really just explaining or putting out real, what I like to call total cost, and that's everything. In this case here of the $33 as all-in cost, should investors figure in a corporate level GNA, um, corporate development and expiration costs? Would you say that 33 is inclusive of things like GNA, corporate development, expansion, et cetera? 
That price includes our corporate overhead, but it doesn't include the exploration uh, spend to bring on additional resource. So, so the feasibility study goes back to um, what I mentioned in terms of we've got our mining licence, we've got 36 million pound residing, we've proved that up to measured and indicated levels, um, it's good to go. So that, that's how we predicated our model. Bringing in additional resource um, may, you know, would influence that costing. Um, but certainly as it stands, 33 US per pound or thereabouts was, is our all-in cost, which is your C3 all-inclusive cost. Not all-in sustaining cost, which is lower, that's around 27 and cash costs around 21. But just, and you know, important to note there that um, subsequent to the feasibility study as announced, made reference to on the 20th of August, I mean, we've we've just shaved $1.22 of all of those costs. So, you know, our cash costs are now sub or tw sub 20 US per pound. Um, so yeah, we're tightening our belt as best we can. Let's move on to uh, to offtake and long-term contracts. I know we've talked uh, touched on this in the past here in the conversation. What is Boss doing on this front? And I assume you and Sashi uh, are, are looking at leading this, of course, and, and the discussions have already commenced with clients for a potential offtake or some kind of an agreement. Talk to what the status of that is, and would you also be willing to share what jurisdictions in terms of countries that uh, you're looking at as potential utility clients originating out of? Well, starting on jurisdictions, uh, it's, it's, we're US centric largely at the moment, but having said that, we've had discussions uh, uh, with with uh, sort of OECD countries and, and Asian as well. So so we we I think basically we're, we're, we've got the shipping routes, we're happy to supply any any particular jurisdiction. Um, it just seems to be that that a lot of the, the overwhelming sort of interest seems to be coming of late from the US. Um, so you're right, Sashi is leading the, the charge there and, and we're staying very close to the market and engaging with fuel buyers so that we can quickly respond to price movements. Um, engagement, as you know, is, is um, largely done with utilities by market requests and then more formal requests for proposals or RFPs and we're undertaking both when, when, when they become available. So, so our intention as per our previous experience operating uranium mines is to really embark on a, a layering of contracts in, of different durations or tenures and price mechanisms so that we can build a portfolio which protects us against the downside but flexible enough to take advantage of the market upside. Um, Honeymoon's a good project, you know, and our interest is to do the best by our stakeholders while building good relationships with long-term strategic utilities. Interesting you mentioned that, you know, last cycle, I think we can all say that uh, nobody was able to protect their downside and continue operating in a, in a fashion that they would like. And that even includes the majors, Kazataprom and Chemico. They're between a rock and a hard place, as you know now. So it'll be interesting to see how this cycle goes with folks being able to actually really truly protect their downside and continue operations even in an inevitable bear market that will eventually come yet again to the sector. Well, let's talk, touch in profile, maybe just a little bit more detail. Are you planning to leave production unfilled? Are you going to go fully contracted? Obviously, yeah. that will depend on price. What's your thoughts on how much you really want to contract before restart? Is it just enough to squeak by the financing side of things? Maybe give us a little bit of idea on your mix. Yeah. 
No, no, you're, you're, you're spot on. I mean, it's fair to say our intention is to have around 80% of production under long-term contracts and, and to do that on a rolling basis with those different tenures. Um, however, even this is dependent on market conditions, the existing portfolio and, uh, you know, our judgment of market direction. Yeah, absolutely. Let's move on here. So on the financing, there's been an arrangement set up with Tribeca, uh, which is a major shareholder. Can you talk to those potential financing terms specifically? What can investors expect coming out of that if the company is to utilize, I believe it's 65 million US? Give us the details of that if you can. I can limited details. It is it is a confidential document, um, but we have a really close, good relationship with Tribeca, and you know I look forward to an opportunity if we if we can work with them. The mandate does um, provide us with an ability to source additional competitive financing that that Tribeca can look to match or better. Um, so so they've, it, it, it's a mandate that is a, allows for that competitiveness um, that I pointed to earlier that I think is really important really um, to get get the best terms. And as mentioned, you know we've started the process. We're engaging with Tribeca. We're engaged. We're whittling down the sort of banks that we would like to run with. And the most prudent means at securing the best terms is really when you run that that competitive process. So a lot of mines that I find sort of go along and, and they complete their feasibility study, they go into their what we call feed, front-end engineering design work. And with that, you start recruiting senior executives within your, your management team, which are expensive. Um, and at the same time, they start looking to secure their finance. But finance can take time. I mean, it can take up to six months. And if you finish your, your that front-end engineering feed design work, um, within a few months, you've suddenly got an expensive compilation of, of executives waiting to you secure the finance. So, so we've been a bit more proactive. We're on the front foot. We're we're trying to get ahead of the curve, and um, we'll get to a point where if uranium prices haven't picked up and we haven't landed an offtake, at least half that sort of financing uh, work would have been undertaken. And that when we do then land the offtake, we'll then be ready to sort of do a formal due diligence with the identified limited banks and um, and secure best terms. Yeah, and speaking of the terms, Duncan, just a little bit more there. With your guys' initial capital cost to get this going, which is quite low, what do you see and maybe what management sees as far as what the cost of capital is? Are you guys looking at something that with the costs here, 7%, 6%? I mean, what do you think is the range? Can you maybe share what a range would be well, potentially? Yeah, look, I, I took a really conservative uh, measure in our, in our feasibility study. So the, the results that you see there, I used a conservative 10%, which I think is on the outlier. But if anything, I, I did that so I could improve upon it when we when we actually come forward and narrow those terms. But look, if we can achieve 7% or anywhere lower than that, I think that would be a, a good outcome. Yep, that's the way to approach it. And let's move on here. Uh, the expansion, about the 3 million pounds production per year. If the right market conditions exist, do you see that there's room to expand beyond the licensed amount under that expansion phase, do you see that the resource expansion, obviously through exploration, plan upgrades, license modification, would that be amenable if the market conditions merit such a move? Absolutely. You know, if the resources can be defined from that significant exploration target of up to 190 million pounds, 
anything is possible, really. Um, it's, an, it's envisaged that these uh, the new mineralised target areas that we've identified um, from our and, and, and in addition to our existing our excess chalk resource that's not included in that feasibility study of 36 million pounds, uh, will form the basis of a study to assess and define that stage three production ramp up to produce more than three million pounds. So the ramp up program itself will be contingent on again market conditions, uh, permitting in terms of the mining, you know, additional mining licenses, and of course the uh, the price of U308. So it's noted that stage three didn't form part of our original feasibility study, but we believe that with improving market conditions, as uh, it's prudent to commence the initial planning associated with an increase in uh, production capacity consumerate to the uh, with uranium resources available to us and and that's underway that that's well underway so our existing export permit is 3.3 million pounds and that itself can certainly be increased with government approval and I see no reason why that wouldn't be readily obtained if we can demonstrate the viability of, of increased production haven't done the math yet, but uh, I'm I'm interested to see how stage two expansion cash flows can look to finance the final potential stage expansion. I haven't got to that math yet, but uh, certainly an interesting setup that you guys have. And of course, uh, again, the costs are in your favor. Let's move on, Duncan. Let's talk uh, just some other topics here. Does Boss have any desire to look at other uranium assets within Australia? or maybe other jurisdictions, or is the company at this point really focused in on Honeymoon? That's uh, a good question. And, uh, you know, I took time out to sit down with Rick Rawl and visit him uh, early last year, just discussing his view on the world and how he saw life. And, and I completely agree with his outlook. I mean, the key to any good operating mine is to reduce corporate overheads and increase production profile. And if you can't do it yourselves, um, you look at M&A. So, yes, I mean, our eyes are open. We see a lot of proposals. But um, let's remember Adam Rodman's catch cry, not all pounds are created equal. So irrespective of favourable uranium prices, uranium deposits have become more expensive to delineate. They take longer to develop in the modern world. And when you add to that permitting and licensing, it remains a really defining factor between a mineral deposit that's characterised characterized, as a being geologically competent and a mineable ore body that's jurisdictionally ready. So no emerging project is exempt from those challenges. And when you put that into context, the, uh, the low uranium price environment is not rewarding companies who allocate capital to drive prices. So it follows that uh, we need to ensure that any M&A activity actually raises the value of the share price and not simply dilute the company and its shareholders. And where we sit with Honeymoon, we're in pole position as is. Uh, to be a first mover in the next cycle. So, where you know where we where were we to do anything, we would focus on tier one jurisdictions and advanced low risk projects. We we don't need to overplay it as mentioned and give the market an excuse to attack the company and diminish value. And but but bearing all those factors in mind, there are one or two projects that have caught our eye. So so let's see. Duncan, let's talk about OTC listing. You guys don't have any at this point in the U.S. What's the thought process on getting something going in that regard, Duncan? Uh, I know it's OTC is very simple to get onto. Are there any plans in the near term to get on U.S. OTC exposed to North American investors? 
Yeah, of course. I mean, as said, you know, we're US centric and, uh, you know, I'd love to be more present in the US, but I'm open minded. I mean, I've worked on international markets. I've had experience firsthand with like the TSX or Toronto Stock Exchange and certainly the London Stock Exchange. But um, the advice I've received that there's no real impediment for North American investors to invest on the ASX. But Andrew, uh, what's your personal opinion? Well, I would just say on that point, uh, the impediment is the U.S. regulations. And so if you're a standard audience, potentially retail, and you have an E-Trade account or a TD Ameritrade or a Charles Schwab account, generally um, there is a higher cost to get access to the ASX. Or in some cases, you cannot get to the ASX. That's notwithstanding that there are some good brokers and there are some other vehicles and structures that, that uh, a person that is willing to put forth the effort can get onto to have access. But my understanding is, is for an initial listing, now if, if you're able to handle anything in London or in Toronto, that the US OTC is a cakewalk and, and very inexpensive to do. So I think it makes sense to go that route just because it can be done in a bull market or in a bear market, very little cost. And then of course, from there, you can look to be a little bit more exotic with some of your listings. And of course, you know, people may disagree, and I've, I've seen some recent discussion about this, but at the end of the day, in a raging bull market, the New York Stock Exchange, Amex, is the place to be listed. Now, I'm not saying that time is now, it's not, but I've heard a lot of discussion about the TSX, I've heard a lot of discussion about the LSE, but at the end of the day, the New York Stock Exchange is still the king exchange, but the OTC markets allow you to start in North America very cheaply. So that's my view. No, fair point. I'll, I'll pay closer attention to that and look into it. Thank you. Yeah, certainly. OTC uh, QB or, or QX, I think, uh, offers a lot of benefit and then also a very low cost to get on. So let's talk a little other topic, an audience question here. Duncan, do you believe that there is a correlation between energy resources such as oil and uranium? Is there a correlation? And can you have a bull market in uranium without oil? Or do you see them as really, at this point, independent of each other? Look, I'm a, I'm a firm believer that nuclear energy can and should be part of any country's energy mix. But when I, when I consider that question, I don't think oil necessarily correlates as strong as it once did with other energy sources. And that's due to a declining reliance on oil. And because the supply-demand changes that occurred within the US and Canada shale oil and gas over the recent decade, you don't need oil prices rising to have a bull in uranium, um, is my view. The supply-demand fundamentals are very different. Uh, they can be separate, but run together if the stars align. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think that it's quite possible at this point, given what's going on in the world with COVID, that, that you can have a, a joint uh, rise in commodity prices across the board whether it be things like platinum, uh, oil, natural gas, uh, uranium, but certainly I, I agree 100% that the density that uranium has is standalone uh, compared to other sources of energy. Well, let's talk yeah. exit strategy, Duncan. Is management looking to become an operating company and expand oh, yeah. uh, beyond honeymoon, beyond the depletion of resources, as you know, that comes with a mining operation? Is the company looking to be bought out can maybe share a little bit of the internal strategy here, Duncan. My role is to build a profitable company and be a leading uranium producer, and we've made significant strides to achieve that over the past years. And my 
personal sincere desire is to be an operator and we're, we're positioning ourselves to do just that i mean we've attracted the likes of sashi and and Bryn to our team and our boards getting the right compliment and you know our view is we're operate we're getting ourselves into operational readiness so yes we we definitely want to become an operator we've done it before and we look forward to doing it again um but you know i mean to answer you and in all openness, um, at the end of the day, there, there are no egos in the room at BOSS. I mean, if there's a deal that makes commercial sense and maximise return for our shareholders, then I'll do my utmost to uh, to make it as value accreditive as possible, regardless of, of what that means to my own personal aspirations. Uh, I've got a duty to shareholders. That's a good way to approach it. And if there is a a deal out there, a potential out there, whether it be now or not maybe in ideal market conditions or even in bull market conditions. As you know, we can see premiums on mergers and acquisitions and takeovers uh, quite sky high, if you will, as we saw in the last cycle. I think it does make sense when the right deal comes along and everybody's able to look at the assets that are involved in a combined company and the pipeline that could result of a combined company um, I think that that also can be looked at. Absolutely, Andrew. I mean, it goes back to that, you know, ultimately um, the goal of, is to get big and reduce corporate overheads and increase production profile. Yes, absolutely. We, 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 we just in terms of honeymoon, uh, you know, at this stage with our asset and our huge exploration potential, uh, we're, in a, we're in a really good position doing that ourselves for the time being. But uh, as I said, there's no egos. Um, we'll do what's right by our shareholders. Duncan, well, potential investors who are listening, uh, why should they consider Boss Resources now at these current price levels? What would you say to potential investors who are listening and, might I add, existing shareholders of Boss that might be looking to add to their position? Simply put, we've prepared ourselves as best we can and to, to respond quickly to the market. We're, we're engaging very closely with the market. Uh, we're making great strides in, in sort of drill-ready targets to expand our resource profile, and we're technically enhancing the, the already uh, sort of very successful feasibility studies. So we have first mover advantage. Uh, we will certainly be Australia's next uranium producer and one of the first to come back on stream in the world. So I think for those existing shareholders, uh, thank you very much for, for your support um, during during the past few years in a low cost environment. And to new shareholders, uh, we would love to have you on board. I mean, you've got a sincere team here that's genuinely wanting to operate, that's got proven experience in doing so. And uh, yeah, we look forward to being part of that operating mine in the industry. I certainly agree with you uh, in Australia. I think you guys are certainly first in line and, and well ahead of any competition within Australia uh, by a mile. How about uh, contact? Uh, how can folks reach out to you uh, if they want to get in touch and learn more information about the company? I think the easiest thing to do is to click onto our website at, at uh, bossresources.com.au and sorry, .com. Um, but certainly, um, I, I'm happy to take any questions uh, that your listeners have by my email address, which is Duncan at bossresources.com.au. And yeah, but the website gives you all the information in terms of contact. Well, Duncan, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, appreciate the the extensive introduction to the company, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. and And best of luck over at Boss. That's very kind of you, Andrew. Thank you, and thank you for your time. And when you next find yourself down under in Australia, let's let's get you out onto the uh, honeymoon site. 
And uh, to all your listeners, I, I hope I hope you and uh, your families are all in good health during these challenging COVID times. Uh, please take care of yourselves and I wish you all very well. Thank you.